morning. Good to see everybody here. I want you to imagine a time in your life when you received an award for something that you were involved in. Now, it could have been any number of things, any one of a number of things in your life. It could have been in the area of academics and school, athletics, some work achievement, some community involvement. But imagine yourself, maybe you imagine yourself standing on a medal stand. How would that feel? Being awarded with some kind of athletic medal. Or imagine yourself in front of an audience full of people applauding your musical talent. Or getting your picture in the hometown newspaper. Or walking into your, the classroom as a, as a teenager and your classmates are looking at you in admiration. It feels good to be recognized for some accomplishment that is important to you, doesn't it? And what makes something like that even more special is when winning the award required you to overcome some major obstacles. Like it had, it looked like there was no way you were going to be able to accomplish that feat or earn that award. And then all of a sudden, you know, you were helped through or things just turned out the right way. Obstacles that made it look like there was no way you were going to succeed, but you were able to come through and win that award. I don't know if you can feel that so much. I hope everybody's had some kind of experience like that. But that's basically what Jesus is offering a first century church in Asia Minor. You know, Jesus is having John the Apostle write to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is uh, modern Turkey, uh, the west side of Turkey. And he's having him write to this church who in the world's eyes looks like a loser but in God's eyes, is given the challenge to win the victor's crown. Now, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And Jesus is telling the Apostle John to send a message to the church in the ancient city of Smyrna. Like I said, is in the western part of the, as modern Turkey. Now, I'd like you to to look with me as we read the first verse of that letter. Just to get started into it, it's a short letter, and today we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper, and this, would be, this is a good passage to have before it. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Now, as we look into this church in the ancient city of Smyrna, we're going to see a gigantic difference between the city of Smyrna that the church is located in and the church, the Christian community in Smyrna. It's going to be like two opposites. Smyrna as a city had this glowing reputation for its beauty and its civic pride. Something to really be proud of. The city had acquired the title, 
the first in Asia. It's part of the Roman Empire. We're talking prominence. We're talking an image that's exalted for a city. And this city had a tight relationship with Rome. It was one of only four cities throughout the empire to be chosen to host the provincial assembly where all the big people came, you know, to make decisions. It's a very high honor. And it held that honor, one of, one of the four cities. It was the first city in Asia to erect a temple to the goddess Roma. You can see where that name came from. It beat out ten other cities for the privilege of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. It eventually became a center of the imperial cult. And that was the cult of worshiping the emperor. And you know, that, that happens, it even happens today in order to draw people together under one leader. And that's why they try to push out all religions. They want everybody to be for the state. And the emperor becomes the god. But Smyrna also had a large Jewish population that was very anti-Christian. And we'll see that. We'll see why in a few minutes. But Smyrna was a prominent city of the very powerful Roman Empire. But the prominence of Smyrna and its tight relationship to the Rome put it at serious odds with the Christian community in its midst. It didn't bode well for the Christians to have that kind of relationship. So now I'd like to read verses 8 and 9 as we go on in this letter. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are, they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last, and the one who died and came back to life. You know, when you think of the first and the last, it all begins with him and it all ends with him. Jesus is the eternal one. He is sovereign over all history. He's been ruling forever and ever in both directions. He is everywhere at once and throughout all time. Now, I'd like... <clears throat> to look at some verses from Isaiah, a couple of verses, you don't have to turn there, but just that relate to these verses. It's Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. It says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And then over in chapter 48, just two verses. 
Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. Of course, this is God the Father. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. In this letter, Jesus claims to be the first and the last, which puts him on the same footage or equal footing with the Father, doesn't it? And when I think of the first and the last, I think of preeminence. I think of someone that is completely superior with no no, uh, competition, completely supreme, no equal. He is before all things, and he is at the end of all things. All things bow in submission to him. Without him, nothing has any value or lasting meaning. And that's not a boastful claim that Jesus makes. It's a claim that is absolutely true. But the reason Jesus makes this claim is because these followers of him in Smyrna are being treated as though they are the scum of the earth. As though they have no value. They are enemies of the state. They are looked down upon by all others. They won't bow down to worship the emperor. That makes them lower than dirt. And Jesus is saying that their relationship to him makes them sons of the king. Sons of the one who is the first and the last. One who has died and come back to life. You see, and this shows us that there is the world's estimation of what is valuable. And then there's God's estimation of what is valuable. And God's estimation is what matters. Even if living by God's estimation makes us enemies of the empire, enemies of the state, we want to rank high in God's kingdom. That's the choice we have to make. Which kingdom are we going to work to become, you know, ranking high in? We want to rank high in God's kingdom and God's empire. Now, Jesus said here, as we already read, he was the first and the last, and he also says he was the one who died and came to life again. Jesus is life itself. Jesus conquered death. I mean, death has been reigning ever since the garden, right? And is the most powerful enemy that there could be. No one has been able to conquer it. No one has been able to come back from it. But Jesus took on death. He experienced it fully and overpowered it and came back to full life. Amazing. No one else has even come even close to that. Earthly enemies do wield power. And most people on earth will yield to that power and serve the evil one. They don't know they're serving the evil one, but they're serving the world system. But Christ has conquered the evil one. And the evil one has lost. 
Now, the Christians in Smyrna are suffering for their Christian faith. And their, their connection to Christ, their faithfulness to Christ has cost them dearly within the state, within the empire. And they're facing severe trials. They're experiencing poverty and true suffering. But Jesus says in their earthly poverty and in their suffering, he says they are actually rich. Even though they lack everything that you want in the world, they lack money, they lack food, people are turning against them, they lack basic needs. You know, Jesus says that they're living in poverty. He says that their true portfolio shows they have immense wealth. And you know, if you talk to anybody else looking from the outside and you say, well, here are the rich people, they'd scoff, wouldn't they? How can they be rich? But it's kingdom of God wealth, isn't it? They have collateral that they can exchange in God's bank. And we just have to make that choice between which bank we want to put our money in. And then Jesus says also, I know your afflictions and your, and your poverty, yet you are rich. And then he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He knows about the slander that they've had to endure from the Jews. The Jews in Smyrna were viciously attacking the Christians. You see, at one point in that history, <clears throat> the Romans allowed the Jews not to have to worship the emperor. They let them have their own religion. But they were the only ones. And they wanted that unity of worshiping the emperor, but they allowed the Jews to do that because of their background and everything. And then as Christians, as people became Christians, they were kind of seen as part of the Jewish faith because they were, you know, the first Christians were Jews. But the Jews didn't want them to be seen as part of their faith because they didn't want them ruining their privileged position of not having to worship the emperor, and they didn't want all these Christians coming in and ruining it for them. So the Jews in Smyrna would slander the Christians to try to keep them separate from them, and they would even you know, report on them, tell on them, so that the Romans would, would persecute them. And of course, the Jews didn't like the Christians from the beginning anyway because they, to them, they left the Jewish faith. But in actuality, they, re, they completed the Jewish faith. So the Christians in Smyrna were being hit from all sides. And in the world's eyes, they were low-class, uh, poverty-stricken people, powerless, rejected by the people that had the power. But the one who is the first and the last, the preeminent one, the one who conquered the greatest enemy to ever exist, he says, you are rich. And now Jesus is going to tell them what is ahead of them and how to handle it in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 
Don't be afraid of the suffering coming your way. He says some of them will even go to prison. And that will be from the working of the evil one. Let me get that next. There it goes. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Some of them will go to prison, he says, from the workings of the evil, when the devil will put them into prison. He says, that will be a test. God will use that as a test. God is going to allow the evil one to influence human agents to put some of them in prison, and God will use that as a test of faith for his, his followers. And he says they will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, <clears throat> that probably means, you know, 10 is often a number used that for, for not exactly 10, but it probably means that there's going to be a limited time of persecution. That means God has it all planned out. How much time they will be receiving persecution. It's all under his control. And he is going to use evil people doing evil things to test his, his, his people and to strengthen their faith. And he says, he tells them to enter this time of persecution with total faith in God. You know, so the police come, they're knocking at your door, Someone has informed you that you are a Christian. They take the husband to jail. And Jesus says, don't doubt your faith at that point. Don't get mad at God. Don't go berserk. Don't say, well, God, I served you so faithfully. and Look how many people I've helped, and yet you took my husband away. Don't turn away from God. But trust in God, even in the hardest times, even if you go to prison. He says, even if it goes to your death. Because you see, God has it all under control. Even when it looks like the enemy is winning. It seems like, it seems like there's no way the enemy isn't winning. He's killing people. He's putting people in prison. God says, I'm winning. And you win with me when you trust in me. And when we keep the faith, and we keep our trust in God, that he will bring it all to what is good and just and right. Jesus says he will give us life as the victor's crown. Be faithful even to the point of death. I will give you life as your victor's crown. <clears throat> And we know that if anyone goes all the way in persecution and gives up their life, that they will be in the presence of Jesus with the joy that will be immeasurable. And that person who is faithful to the end receives that victor's crown of eternal life. And you know, the person who is in the presence of Jesus would not really trade that crown for any kind of reward they could get on earth. Any kind of earthly reward, because that award will be the award that surpasses anything that we could imagine. 
Now, you know, my personal thoughts on facing persecution, these are just things that have gone through my mind, is that we shouldn't focus on it. I mean, we should be, you know, we should strengthen ourselves to be aware of it, but we shouldn't focus on it or worry about it or fret about it. <clears throat> because I think worrying about something in the future is often worse than going through what it is you're worrying about. I, this might sound like a silly example, but if someone told you and they knew that you were going to break your arm next Wednesday, you'd be in fear all, all week long, right? But usually when you break your arm, I mean, it's not like something that you have to just worry constantly about. It's broken, it hurts, you get it fixed. Now, that might not be the best example, but <clears throat> maybe you take it down, down the road a bit. I say, don't worry about persecution, but here's what we can do. Focus on strengthening our faith. That's what it is. That's what's going to help us through any hard times. Strengthening our faith. Getting to know God better. You know, that's why he introduces himself in these letters as the first and the last, the one who is, who was, and will come. Getting to know Christ better, the one who died and came back to life. So if we face death, Christ has already faced it. He's already come back from it. We know that it can happen. And he says anybody who is one with Christ, who has come to Christ for forgiveness, has given their life to him, will rise from the dead. We have that promise. We have to just be thinking outside of earthly things. He's the sovereign Lord who has all things under control. He's the one who has already conquered death and sin. And this is our answer to persecution and trials. And then in his last verse, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. <clears throat> and our victory is through our faith, isn't it? Our victory is in Jesus Christ, who was the complete victor. Who I can't even imagine overcoming death. You know, death was, is so, so final. Death brings such sorrow, and Christ went through it and conquered it. And we're the only people, those who are connected to Christ, who are going to conquer death because Christ conquered it. And we're doing it through faith. So, this morning we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Brian's going to come up here in, in a minute. I'll pray. And then we can just take what we've heard this morning and what Brian's going to tell us and just connect ourselves to Christ through the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for those who have gone before us and have shown us the way. We thank you for Christ who has paved the way uh, for our resurrection after death. And we thank you that all is taken care of and help us just be strong in the faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
this. One of the things I think, just to piggyback, I mean, this is a perfect, actually what Joe said, you're gonna hear some of that and what I'm gonna say, what he's already said. Can you hear me? Do I need, you can hear me okay? Okay. Maybe this one's picking up a little. Um, you know, to get through those times of persecution, I think one of the key things is community. Uh, the community of believers. I mean, even just in the, in the things that we've been through in the last two years, I have felt such a sense of the importance of community, of being with other believers, of times of worship, of times of prayer, times like sharing the Lord's Supper together. So we come into community with the Lord, but also with one another around this table. I don't know if you've heard of the, of the Didache, the Didache is one of the oldest Christian writings, extra-biblical, that we have. The word actually means teaching. And the full title of it is The Teaching of the Lord According to the Twelve Apostles. So it's a very, very early um, history of Christianity, of the early church. Part of the um, Eucharist prayer recorded in the Didache says this. So this would have been a probably a very familiar prayer to early believers. And it says this, As this bread is made from ingredients that must be gathered from different places and sources, so too may your church be gathered from all peoples and places to become one, one in you and you in them. Deliver those gathered in your name from all evil and teach us to love each other and to build a church that becomes the holy and sacred community you wish for all. What a great prayer for the Lord's Supper. And I'm sure that the, the believers at the Church of Smyrna probably were familiar with a prayer like that, or that one, or something very similar. And the church there must have been full of believers that stood together in unity for the very reasons that, that Joe shared about what they were facing. It was a heavily persecuted church. 1 Corinthians verse one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 10 uh, probably would have been a very important verse under those circumstances. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no division among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, or some versions say the same thought. So unity of thought and of mind and of purpose, that's what believers should have. Smyrna was a city that was full of temples to false gods. There was forced worship of the spirit of Rome, and then that kind of evolved into forced worship of the dead emperors, which evolved into eventually forced worship of the living emperors. In A.D. 23, Joe talked about this, Smyrna won the privilege of building the first temple to Tiberius Caesar, if that's a privilege, to Tiberius Caesar. So what I mean by that is kind of like if, if your country or your city you know, wins the privilege of hosting the Olympics, you know, it's a big deal. Well, this must have been a big deal <laughs> to some, that, that they were chosen to have this temple built to Tiberius Caesar. 
and the emperor Domitian was the first to demand worship under the title Lord as a test of political loyalty. I mean, you think we're in a bad place. <laughs> At least we're not supposed to call our leaders Lord. It is believed that Domitian was the one who banished John to the Isle of Patmos. So this very letter that we're reading by, by the Apostle John is believed that Domitian was the one who banished him to the Isle of Patmos where he caught this vision and wrote this down. Under, Do, under Domitian, Caesar worship became compulsory. There really wasn't an option. If you didn't do it, you would be persecuted. Everybody under Roman control was compelled to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. Once they did, they would be given a certificate to show that they were loyal. Can you imagine living in that type of a culture? <laughs> Just burn this pinch of incense. And so I'm sure that for Christians, for believers, can you imagine the pressure in your own heart, in your own mind to say, you know, let's just go burn this little pinch of incense, let's just get it over with, and then we can go worship the one true God, right? And, and you justify. Oh, my heart's not really in it. I'm just doing this to get the state off my back so I can go and worship the one true God. These believers, they refused. Kind of like what, what comes out of our mouth originates in the heart. I think you could say the same thing about our actions. Maybe if you're willing to compromise, you have a heart that's willing to compromise. These believers refused to do it. And you've probably heard of Polycarp. He was one of the believers in Smyrna who refused to burn incense. And he was martyred because of that decision. He was a citizen of Smyrna at a time when persecution of Christians was really, really heightened and he refused to participate in the burning of the incense and the acknowledgement of the Caesars and calling them Lord or any of that. He fled to the countryside <clears throat> but he was captured when a fellow believer under torture revealed where he was hiding and so they went and they, and they uh, found him. The account of Polycarp's martyrdom is the second oldest account on record after the account of Stephen in the book of Acts. So this is how tied, <laughs> I mean, Polycarp was, Polycarp was a disciple of people who actually knew Jesus, who actually had spent some time with Jesus, like the Apostle John. He was a disciple of those people. That's how closely connected uh, he was to, to the origins <laughs> of our faith. So the, the death of Polycarp, his martyrdom, was recorded by Pionus, who is a friend of his. And I'm going to read uh, excerpts from uh, what was recorded by, by Pionus uh, regarding the martyrdom of Polycarp. So listen to this story. As he tells the story, Pionus emphasizes the meaning of martyrdom as an imitation of Christ and a communion with his passion. He notes how, in every respect, Polycarp's ordeal echoes the ordeal of his Lord Jesus Christ and is a martyrdom conformable to the gospel. Polycarp waited to be betrayed, just as the Lord did. He was captured on a Friday, the day Christ died. Like Jesus, he too prayed for his captors and his persecutors. 
In fact, when the authorities arrived at the farmhouse where he was staying, he got their permission to have an hour to pray before departing. While they waited for him to finish his prayer, Polycarp arranged food and drink to be served to them. The chief of police happened to be named Herod. As they rode to the arena together, the cynical Herod, who evidently did not take very seriously the, the divinity of the emperor, which I find kind of ironic, said, what harm is there to say Lord Caesar and to offer incense and all that sort of thing and to save yourself? Polycarp politely declined to follow his advice. When they arrived, the arena was filled with a boisterous crowd. Christians, because they refused to worship pagan gods, get this, they were known as atheists. The Christians were known as atheists because they didn't worship false gods. And they were condemned as such. He was brought up to be interrogated in the presence of the crowd, and the proconsul said, Have respect for your age, Polycarp. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Change your mind. Say, away with the atheist. So Polycarp, pointing to the pagan crowd in the stands, said, away with the atheist. <laughs> the proconsul was not amused. <clears throat> he continued, take the oath and I will release you. Curse Christ. <clears throat> Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? If you vainly suppose that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. But if you desire to learn the teaching of Christianity, appoint a day and give me a hearing. The, um, the proconsul replied, I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Polycarp boldly retorted, call them. But the proconsul had a problem. The night had grown late and all the beasts had been locked securely in their cages. The crowd suggested an impromptu method of execution in which they could participate. People began running to nearby shops to fetch firewood. They demanded Polycarp be burned alive. Polycarp was tied to the stake and Pionis recorded for us the prayer he uttered before the execution began. So this is Polycarp's prayer as he's tied to the stake. Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed servant Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and all creation, and of the whole race of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee, because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day an hour to take my part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ for resurrection to eternal life of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit among, among whom may I be received in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice just as thou hast prepared and revealed beforehand and fulfilled though thou art the true God without any falsehood for this and for everything, I praise thee. I bless thee. I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved servant, through whom be glory to thee with him and Holy Spirit, both now and unto the ages to come. Amen. This prayer is remarkable. 
for it is almost certainly an adaptation of the prayer that Polycarp had prayed over the Eucharist on each Lord's Day. It is valuable because it is one of the earliest examples of such a prayer and because it also makes clear that both martyrdom and the Eucharist have something in common. They both put, put us in touch with the one sacrifice of Christ and invite us to enter into that sacrifice. So one of the most unifying things we can do as believers is gather around the Lord's table. And I just want to read one final scripture. John 17, verse 23. And this is part of uh, what's known as the high priestly prayer. This is part of a long prayer that Jesus prayed. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know you sent me and love me even as you love them. Or as you, I'm sorry, love them even as you love me. So it's a, a unifying thing to gather around the Lord's table. And you know, the day may come when we face things similar to what the early believers did in Smyrna and so many other places. And are we prepared to withstand and to remain faithful to our God and our King? So I will pray, and then uh, as the worship begins and you feel led, you can just come forward and partake of the Lord's Supper Let's just do that as a unified body. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord, and we are grateful that we can unify around your life, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. But Lord, that is the thing that gives us hope for eternal life. And that's why it's so great to have these emblems before us that just remind us of that, Lord, that you died on the cross for our sins. And if we just accept and believe that you did that on our behalf, you will receive us unto your kingdom. And there is perfect unity and perfect fellowship among that body of believers, Lord. <clears throat> so thank you that we are a part of that. And as we partake of the cup and the loaf, Lord, just being reminded of your body and your blood that was shed for us. May we also remember that you overcame death on our behalf. And so there is richness, there is wealth in that poverty. And God, we cling to that and, and we are so grateful that we're not members of, uh, of this worldly kingdom, but we belong to an eternal kingdom, to your kingdom. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.